Section 17 of Vice Versa by F. Anstey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Vice Versa by F. Anstey. Chapter 16. Hard Pressed. Part 1. Mark the poor wretch to overshoot his troubles, how he outruns the wind, and with what care. He cranks and crosses with a thousand doubles. The many musets through which he goes are like a labyrinth to amaze his foes. As soon as the gate was opened, Paul went through mechanically with the others onto the platform and waited at the bookstall while they changed the paper. He knew well enough that what had seemed at the time a stroke of supreme cunning would now only land him in fresh difficulties, if indeed it did not lead to the detection of his scheme. But he dared not interfere and prevent them from making the unlucky exchange. Something seemed to tie his tongue, and in sullen, leaden apathy he resigned himself to whatever might be in store for him. They passed out again by the booking office. There was an old lady still at the pigeonhole, trying to persuade the much-enduring clerk to restore a lucky sixpence she had given him by mistake, and was quite unable to describe. Mr. Bultitude would have given much just then to go up and shake her into hysterics, or curse her bitterly for the mischief she had done. But he refrained, either from an innate chivalry or from a feeling that such an outburst would be ill-judged. So silent and miserable, with slow step and hanging head, he set out with his jailers to render himself upon once more at his house of bondage, a sort of involuntary regulus without the oath. "'Dicky, you are very anxious to run just now,' observed Chawner, after they had gone some distance on their homeward way. "'We were late for tea, late for tea,' explained Paul hastily. "'If you think the tea's worth racing like that for, I don't,' said Coggs viciously. "'It's muck.' "'You don't catch me racing, except for something worth having,' said Coker. One more flash of distinct inspiration came to Paul's aid in the very depths of his gloom. It was, in fact, a hazy recollection from English history of the ruse by which Edward I, when a prince, contrived to escape from his captors at Hereford Castle. "'Why, why,' he said excitedly, "'would you race if you had something worth racing for? Hey, would you now?' "'Try us,' said Coker emphatically. "'What do you call something?' inquired Chawner suspiciously. "'Well,' said Mr. Bultitude, "'what do you say to a shilling?' "'You haven't got a shilling,' objected Coggs. "'Here's a shilling, see,' said Paul, producing one. "'Now then, I'll give this to any boy I see get into tea first. "'Bultitude thinks he can run,' said Coker, "'with an amiable unbelief in any disinterestedness. "'He means to get in first and keep the shilling himself, I know.' "'I'll back myself to run him any day,' put in Coggs. "'So will I.' added Chawner. "'Well, is it agreed?' Paul asked anxiously. "'Will you try?' 
All right, said Chawner. You must give us a start to the next lamppost, though. You stay here, and when we're ready, we'll say off. They drew a line on the path with their feet to mark Paul's starting point, and went on to the next lamp. After a moment or two of anxious waiting, he heard Cog's shout all in one breath, One, two, three, off! And the sound of scampering feet followed immediately. It was the most exciting and hotly contested race. Paul saw them for one brief moment in the lamplight. He saw Chawner scudding down the path like some great camel, and Coker squaring his arms and working them as if they were wings. Cogs seemed to be last. He ran a little way himself just to encourage them, but as the sound of their feet grew fainter and fainter, he felt that his last desperate ruse had taken effect, and with a chuckle at his own cleverness, turned round and ran his fastest in the opposite direction. He felt little or no interest in the result of the race. Once more he entered the booking office, and kneeling on a chair, consulted the time-board that hung on the wall over the sheath of texts and the missionary box. The next train was not until 7.25, a whole hour and twenty-five minutes to wait. What was he to do? Where was he to pass the weary time till then? If he lingered on the platform, he would assuredly be recaptured. His absence could not remain long undiscovered, and the station would be the first place they would search for him. And yet he dared not wander away from the neighborhood of the station. If he kept to the shops and lighted thoroughfares, he might be recognized or traced. If, on the other hand, he went out farther into the country, which was utterly unknown to him, he had no watch, and it would be only too easy to lose his way or miscalculate time and distance in the darkness. To miss the next train would be absolutely fatal. He walked out upon the platform and on past the refreshment and waiting rooms, past the weighing machine, the stacked trucks, and the lamp room, meeting and seen by no one. Even the boy at the bookstall was busy with bread and butter and a mug of tea in a dark corner, and never noticed him. He went on to the end of the platform, where the planks sloped gently down to a wilderness of sheds, coaling stages, and sidings. He could just make out the bulky forms of some tarpaulined cattle vans and open coal trucks standing on the lines of metal which gleamed in the scanty gaslights. It struck him that one of these vans or trucks would serve his purpose admirably, if he could only get into it, and very cautiously he picked his way over the clogging ballast and rails till he came to a low, narrow strip of platform between two sidings. He mounted it and went on till he came to the line of trucks and vans drawn up alongside. The vans seemed all locked, but at the end he found an empty coal wagon in which he thought he could manage to conceal himself and escape pursuit to the longed-for 725 train should arrive to relieve him. He stepped in and lay down in one corner of it, listening anxiously for any sound of search, but hearing nothing more than the dismal dirge of the telegraph wires overhead, he soon grew cold and stiff, 
for his enforced attitude was far from comfortable, and there was more coal dust in his chosen retreat than he could have wished. Still, it was secluded enough. It was not likely that it would occur to anyone to look for him there. Ten days ago, Mr. Paul Bultitude would have found it hard to conceive himself lying down in a hard and grimy cold truck to escape his son's schoolmaster. But since then, he had gone through too much that was unprecedented and abnormal to see much incongruity in his situation. It was all too hideously real to be a nightmare. But even here he was not allowed to remain undisturbed. After about half an hour, when he was beginning to feel almost secure, there came a sharp twanging of wires beneath, and two short strokes of a bell in the signal box hard by. He heard someone from the platform, probably the station master, shout, Look alive there, Ing, picking stones, some of you. There those three trucks on the A siding to go to Slopesbury by the 630 luggage. She'll be in in another five minutes. There were steps, as if some persons were coming out of a cabin opposite. They came nearer and nearer. These three, ain't it, Tommy? said a gruff voice close to Paul's ear. That's it, mate, said another, evidently Tommy's. Get him along up to the point there. Can't have the 630 standing about on this ear line all night cause of the limited. Now then, all together, shove. They've got the old horse on the other end. And to Paul's alarm, he felt the truck in which he was begin to move ponderously on the greasy metals and strike the next with its buffers with a jarring shock and a jangling of coupling chains. He could not stand this unless he revealed himself at once or managed to get out of this delusive wagon the six whatever it was train would be up and carry him off to Slopesbury, a hundred miles or so farther from home. They would have time to warn Dick, and he would be expected. Ambushes laid for him, and his one chance would be gone forever. There was a whistle far away down the line, and that humming vibration which announces an approaching train, not a moment to lose. He was afraid to attempt the leap from the moving wagons, and resolved to risk all and show himself. With this intention, he got upon his knees, and putting his head above the dirty bulwark, looked over and said softly, Tommy, I say Tommy. A porter, who had been laboriously employed below, looked up with a white and scared face and staggered back several feet. Mr. Bolditude, in a sudden panic, ducked again. Bill, Paul heard the porter say hoarsely, I'll take my Bible oath. I've never touched a drop this week, not to speak of, but I got him again, Bill. I got him again. Got what again? growled Bill. What's the matter now? It's the jumps, Bill, gasped the other. The oars. They've got me, and no mistake. As I'm a living man, as I was shoving on that there truck, I saw an imp, a ghastly imp, Bill. Stick its ugly head over the side and say, Tommy, it says, just like that. It says, Tommy, I wants you. I durst go near it, Bill. I'll get leave and go home and lay up. It glared at me so horrid, Bill, 
and grinned. Ugh, I'll take the pledge after this year, I will. I'll go to chapel Sundays regular. Let's see if there ain't something there first, said the practical Bill. Easy with the horse up there. Now then, he stepped on the box of the wheel and looked in. Get out of this, whatever you are. We don't contract to carry no imps on this line. Well, if I ever, I, Tommy, old man, it's all right. You ain't got him this time. Here's your imp. And, reaching over, he hauled out the wretched Paul by the scruff of his neck in a state of utter collapse and deposited him on the ground before him. That ain't your private carriage. You know that ain't. There wasn't no bed made up for you there. That I know on. You ain't after no good. Now, you're a vagabond. That's about your size, I can see. What do you mean by it, eh? Shut your head, Bill, will you? said Tommy, whose relief probably softened his temper. This here's a young gent. Young gent or no young gent, replied Bill sententiously. He's no call to go idling in our wagon and give us hard-working men a turn. Hold him tight, Tommy. Here's the luggage down on us. Tommy held him fast with a grip of iron, while the other porters coupled the trucks, and the luggage train lumbered away with its load. After this, the men slouched up and stood round their captive, staring at him curiously. Look here, my men, said Paul. I've run away from school. I want to go on to town by the next train, and I took the liberty of hiding in the truck, because the schoolmaster will be up here very soon to look for me. You understand? I understand, said Bill, and a nice young party you are. I, I don't want to be caught, said Paul. Naturally, assented Tommy sympathetically. Well, can't you hide me somewhere where he won't see me? Come on, you can do that. What do you say, Bill? asked Tommy. What will the governor say? said Bill dubiously. I've got a little money, urged Paul. I'll make it worth your while. Why didn't you say that afore? said Bill. The governor needn't know. Here's a half-sovereign between you, said Paul, holding it out. That's something like an imp, said Tommy warmly. If all bogies acted as handsome as this here, I don't care how often they show themselves. We'll have a supper on this, mates, and drink young delirium trimaces jolly good health. You come along with me, young shaver. I'll stow you away right enough and let you out when your train comes in. He led Paul onto the platform again and opened a sort of cupboard or closet. That's where we keeps the brooms and lamp rags and them, he said. It ain't what you may call tidy, but if I lock you in, no one won't trouble you. It was perfectly dark and the rags smelt unpleasantly, but Mr. Bultitude was very glad of this second arc of refuge, even though he did bruise his legs over the broom handles. He was gladder still by and by when he heard a rapid, heavy footfall outside, and a voice he knew only too well, saying, I want to see the station master. Ha, there he is. Good evening, station master. You know me, Dr. Grimstone of Crichton House. I want you to assist me in a very unpleasant affair. The fact is, one of my pupils has had the folly and wickedness to run away. You don't say so, said the station master. 
It's only too true, I'm sorry to say. He seemed happy and contented enough. Too, it's a black, ungrateful business. But I must catch him, you know. He must be about here somewhere, I feel sure. You don't happen to have noticed a boy who looked as if he belonged to me. They can't tell me at the booking office. How glad Paul was now he had made no inquiries of the station master. No, said the latter. I can't say I have, sir, but some of my men may have come across him. I'll inquire. Here, Inge, I want you. This gentleman here has lost one of his boys. Have you seen him? What sort of young gentleman was he to look at? Paul heard Tommy's voice ask. A bright, intelligent-looking boy, said the doctor. Medium height, about thirteen, with auburn hair. No, I ain't seen no intelligent boys with medium height, said Tommy slowly. Not least ways to speak to positive. What might he have had on? beside his auburn hair. Black cloth jacket with a wide collar was the answer, gray trousers, and a cloth cap with a leather peak. Oh, said Tommy, then I see him. When? Where? About half an hour since. Do you know where he is now? Well, said Tommy, to Paul's intense horror, for he was listening, quaking to every word of this conversation, which was held just outside his cupboard door. I dare say I could give a guess if I give my mind to it. Out with it, Inge, now. If you know, no tricks, said the station master, who had apparently just turned to go away. Excuse me, sir, but I have some matters in there to see after. When he had gone, the doctor said rather heatedly, Come on, you're keeping something from me. I will have it out of you. If I find you have deceived me, I'll write to the manager and get you sent about your business. You'd better tell me the truth. You see, said Tommy, very slowly and reluctantly, that young gent of yourn was a gent. I tried my very best to render him so, said the doctor stiffly. Here is the result. How did you discover he was one, pray? Cause he acted like a gent, said Tommy. He took and give me half a sovereign. Well, I'll give you another, said the doctor, if you can tell me where he is. Thank you, sir. Don't you be afraid. You're a gent right enough, too, though you do happen to be a schoolmaster. Where is the unhappy boy? interrupted the doctor. Seems as if I was a-roundin' on him, like. Don't it almost, sir, said Tommy, with two evident symptoms of yielding in his voice. Paul shook so in his terror that he knocked down a broom or two with the clatter which froze his blood. Not at all, said the doctor. Not at all, my good fellow. You're, uh, advancing the cause of moral order. Oh, said Tommy, obviously open to conviction. Well, if I'm doing all that, I can't go for wrong, can I? And after all, we mayn't like schools or schoolmasters, not over, above, but we can't get on without them. I suppose. But look ye here, sir, if I goes and tells you where you can get a hold of this here boy, you won't go and wallop him now, will you? I can't make no bargains, said the doctor. I shall act on my own discretion. That's it, said Tommy, unaccountably relieved. Spoke like a merciful Christian gentleman. If you don't go acting on nothing more, nor your discretion, 
You can't hurt him much, I take it. Well, then, since you've spoke out fair, I don't mind putting you on his track like. If the door of the cupboard had not been locked, Paul would undoubtedly have burst out and yielded himself up to escape the humiliation of being sold like this by a mercenary and treacherous porter. As it was, he had to wait till the inevitable words should be spoken. Well, you see, went on Tommy very slowly, as if struggling with the remnants of a conscience. It was like this here. He comes up to me and says, Your young gentleman, I mean, says he, Porter, I wants to hide. I've run away. And I says to him, says I, It ain't no use hanging about here. I says, Cause if you do, your governor, meaning no offense to you, sir, will be coming up and catching you on the top. Right you are, Porter, says he to me. What do you advise, he says. Well, I says, I don't know, as I'm right in giving you no advice at all, having run away from them, as has to care on you. I says, but if I was a young gentleman and didn't want to be catched, I should walk on to Dufferton. It ain't only three miles or so, and you'll have time to do it before the up train comes along there. Thank ye, Porter, he says. I'll do that. And away he bolts. And for anything I know, he's halfway there by this time. A fly shouted the doctor excitedly when Tommy had come to the end of his voracious account. I'll catch that young rascal now, who has a good horse. Davis, I'll take you. Five shillings if you reach Dufferton before the up train. Take thee. The rest was lost in the banging of the fly door and the rumble of wheels. The terrible man had been got safely off on the wrong scent, and Paul fell back amongst the lumber in his closet, faint with the suspense and relief. Presently he heard Tommy's chuckling whisper through the keyhole. Are you all right in there, sir? He's safe enough now, off on a pretty dance. You don't think I was going to tell on you, did you now? I ain't quite such a cur as that comes to, particularly when a young gent saves me from the horrors and gives me half a sovereign. I'll see you through. You make yourself easy about that. End of section 17 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Real Medina, Texas